Bible this morning, and you'll make your way to Matthew chapter 25. That's where I want to begin this morning. Just a couple of verses from Matthew 25 to get us started. So will you go there in your Bible? And when you get to Matthew 25, look down at verse 31, where the Lord says, But when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all His angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them from one another. As the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. And from there, he goes on to describe the judgment seat. It is, brothers and sisters, just one of those very basic things we believe. It is not one of those theological fringe issues. It is a foundation stone in our spiritual house, a key piece of our worldview. What Jesus is describing here, that moment, that moment that is out there somewhere where everything as we know it is going to come to a screeching halt at the sound of the trumpet and the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ when he will return and judge mankind. And everything hangs in the balance based on what happens to us on that day. It is literally eternal destinies that are at stake. Heaven or hell will be decided at that last great day. We believe Jesus is coming to judge men. And so since we believe that, my question this morning for you is this. What if that were today? You know, sometime, Max, a preacher's going to say that, and he's going to be right. What if it was today? What if today I get to be right, and the trumpet does sound, and the Lord does return? My question is for, for all of us to ponder this morning is this. If today is the day, are you a sheep or a goat? Where would you end up? If Jesus came today, would you go to heaven or hell? Over the years, I have found myself astonished by the way disciples answer that question. Some people, some people, you ask that question, if Jesus could, would, would come today, would you go to heaven? And they say something like, Wesley, they say, I hope so. Yeah, y'all have heard that, right? Or maybe you just thought that when I asked the question. Well, if he came today, I'd hope I'd go to heaven, or, or I think that's where I'm going to go. Or some would, some would even say, can we really know? I mean, I guess we'll find out when he comes. Yeah, we will, but that's kind of late, isn't it? It is astonishing the uncertainty that people feel even disciples feel about their spiritual future with the Lord, like they really don't know what's going to happen to them when he comes. I had one lady one time even say, isn't it kind of Calvinistic to be Calvin, uh, confident about that, to say something like, if Jesus came today, I know I would go to heaven. Could we really say that? You know, the odd thing about that, brothers and sisters, is that one of the great blessings about being 
A disciple is, is being able to have peace about our future with the Lord, isn't it? That I don't have to look with eternity and have doubt and uncertainty. One of the benefits of being a disciple is knowing where I stand with the Lord and being able to be confident when the trumpet sounds. And yet, oddly enough, it seems that there are a lot of disciples who not only are not confident, they're not even sure if they can be or should be confident. How about you? If Jesus returned today, would you go to heaven? Is it even appropriate to say with confidence, I believe that I would? Listen, I don't think this is, again, some kind of a fringe theological question that we can kick around in Bible class. I think it's a question that has very practical, practical impact on life every single day. I think it is difficult to have the peace that the gospel promises when I'm not sure about what happens when the trumpet sounds. I think it's why some people struggle to be devoted for Jesus. I've seen a lot of disciples over the year who it seems to me were trying to keep one foot in the kingdom of God, but candidly, folks, they're keeping one foot firmly planted in the world too. And part of the reason for that is they don't really know how this is going to come out. Maybe maybe in the end I'll have that great inheritance the Bible talks about, but maybe it won't work out that anyway, so I might as well party a little bit while I'm here on earth, right? There is a lack of devotion and dedication rooted in the fact that they're really not sure how all this is going to come out in the end with them. And so I guess the question we need to start with this morning is simply this. Can a disciple be confident? Can we, can we say with conviction and, and, and hope that, yes, if the Lord came, I know that I'm going to be with him? And so let me begin answering that question this morning by saying this. I don't think that you have to be a Calvinist to be confident. Yeah, I know, that needs some explanation, doesn't it? What do we mean by a Calvinist? John Calvin was a 16th century theologian who concocted a whole system, let's just call it what it is, a whole system of religious error about how men are saved. And that's important to you and me because every day we are impacting people who go to churches where Calvin's theology has influenced the teaching and as a result has influenced the way they think about salvation and what it means to be saved and all of that. And so that's important to us because we're influenced by people who are Calvinist or at least a little bit have been influenced by the teachings of John Calvin. One of the basic tenets of Calvin's system was this, that once a person is saved, he is eternally secure. You see what I mean by that? What that means is his ticket is punched. His home in heaven is secure. It doesn't matter how he lives his life after that moment. He will certainly go to heaven. You've encountered people who believe that, right? Popularly today, people call it the doctrine of once saved, always saved. may not have realized that that's actually rooted in the teaching of John Calvin. A lot of people don't realize why Calvin believed once you're saved, you're always saved. Calvin believed that the choice of, of, of salvation is God's choice, not ours. He believed that everyone comes into the world 
already with their future planned out for them by God. That when, before you and I were even born, God had already decided who's going to heaven and who's going to hell. Salvation is God's sovereign choice. He picks. We're born going one place or the other, and what we do with our life really doesn't matter. And so you see the implications for the doctrine, right? If God picked you to be saved, you are certainly going to be saved. And so it doesn't matter how you live your life after that. I had a man tell me one time, he said, I don't care if I'm in bed with some other guy's wife and the trumpet sounds, I am going to be with the Lord. Well, now that's what I call confidence. How about you? <laughs> Boy, if God picked you, then you know, right? I'm going to tell you, folks, Calvin's teaching does not give us any confidence at all because Calvin's teaching that salvation can never be lost, that teaching does not agree with the Lord. Now, I got a lot of passages I could use to show you that. I'm just going to give you one this morning. So go over to the book of Hebrews because I want to demonstrate that Calvin and Jesus do not agree. So you know who's right then, okay? Calvin and Jesus do not agree. I'm in Hebrews chapter 3. Look down at verse number 12. Question is, can a saved person be lost again? And so listen to what the Holy Spirit says to the Hebrew writer. Hebrews 3, verse 12. He says, take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Now, I really don't even read further, do I? Because look at what he said. He's talking to brethren, right? These are brothers and sisters in Christ. And he said, you need to be careful that you don't develop an evil, unbelieving heart and leave Jesus. So what does that teach you, folks? As a disciple, you could change your heart and harden your heart, have an evil and unbelieving heart, and fall away from Jesus. But that's not all that he says. In verse 14, he says, or verse 13, rather, he says, but encourage one another day after day, so long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So he says, you better really pay attention here and not let that happen to your heart. Do you see that? Why? Verse 14. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Do you see it? If I want to partake, if I want to share with Christ in eternal glory, I've got to stick to this thing. I've got to stay with him all the way to the end. It necessarily implies, brothers and sisters, that you may not choose to do that. That a person may choose to have an evil and unbelieving heart. Now, that's one passage. There are a whole lot of passages that make the same point. Even after being saved, someone can have a change of heart. They can harden their heart about Jesus. They can fall away. They can walk away from him. And when they do, they are lost. You see it? And so our religious friends would tell us is, well, I guess you never can be confident about your salvation then, right? You see, they want us to believe that it's one way or the other. Either we embrace Calvin's idea that, that no matter what we do, we're eternally secure, once saved, always saved, or, or we're left to just wonder, never really knowing, are things right with God or not? I'm going to tell you, folks, that's a false dilemma. 
while the Bible teaches that a saved person can be lost, it also teaches that we can be confident about our future. In fact, if I had, a, if I had to have a poster child for that, it would be the Apostle Paul. Can I illustrate? Paul didn't agree with John Calvin either. Go back to 1 Corinthians 9. I want you to see that with me. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul, the great apostle, also recognized that his heart could be hardened, he could turn from the Lord, and he could be lost again as well. In fact, we'll pick up right at the end of 9. Let's start in verse 24. This is 1 Corinthians 9. Look at verse 24, where Paul writes, Do you not know that those who run the race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. You see where he's talking about there, verse 27 or 25? What is that imperishable wreath? He's talking about heaven. He's talking about eternal glory. Verse 26, he said, therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and I make it my slave. Now listen to him, this is important, so that. After I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. He's been using the illustration, the figure of a race. And in verse 27, what he says is, I work really hard at this race I run, this life I'm living for Jesus. I discipline my body. I exercise self-control to be the man he wants me to be. Why? What's his concern? He said in verse 27, I don't want to teach the gospel to all of these people and then get to the end of the race and I be disqualified. What does that mean? It means I don't get the prize. I don't get the wreath. I don't get glory. Paul recognized that it was possible in spite of all he had done for the Lord that he could turn from the Lord and be lost. Do you see that? So he doesn't agree with John Calvin. However, Go over to 2 Timothy 4, and I would, I would also ask you to consider that Paul was confident as he thought about the end. He didn't believe in Calvinism, but he was confident. So in 1 Timothy, or 2 Timothy 4, look down at verse number 6. As Paul is coming to the end of his life, I want you to notice what he says. This is 2 Timothy 4, verse 6. He said, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. That doesn't mean he's about to catch a flight and go on a journey somewhere, right? When he says, the time of my departure has come, what he's saying is, I'm about to die. It's one of the final things, perhaps the final thing that the Apostle Paul wrote. He's getting ready to die. Notice what he says in verse 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In verse 8, in the future there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And so as Paul looked to the future, as he anticipated dying, and he, he looks to that time, he doesn't say, well, I hope I'm going to go to heaven. I think maybe it might work out good for me. He says in verse 8, there is laid up 
for me. He doesn't leave room for even the slightest doubt, does he? He is confident about his future, even though he knows it's possible to be lost. So don't let a Calvinist create this false dilemma for you. Paul knew he could walk away from Jesus. He knew he could be lost, but he was also confident about his future. They have created a false dilemma. But I want you to notice in verse 8 that this isn't just for Paul. He wasn't unique in that regard. This is for all who also have loved his appearing. Brothers and sisters, God wants all of us to be confident about our future with him. Flip over to the book of 1 John for a minute. I'm in 1 John 5. Will you look there? 1 John 5, look down at verse 13, where John says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may, do you see it? So that you may, what? Know that you have eternal life. God wants you and I to know that we have eternal life. In fact, let me ask you this. When I described that judgment scene a minute ago, the trumpet sounding and the Lord appearing and you and I standing before him, as you think about that scene, how does that make you feel? Does the thought of the Lord coming and you being called upon to stand before him, does that terrify us? Is that a dreadful thought? Then something is wrong. Backing up in 1 John to chapter 2, look at verse 28. This is 1 John 2, 28. Now, little children, John writes, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him and shame at his coming. God doesn't want us to be fearful. He doesn't, want to, he doesn't want to dread his coming. He wants us to be thrilled with it, to anticipate it, and to go before him how? What's the word? With confidence. He wants all to feel about this the way that the apostle Paul felt about it. In fact, folks, you need to remember in this that God is on our side. He is not our opponent in this great endeavor. In fact, he is not, he is not just a, a bystander watching with, with no interest in that. God's in the tank for us. He wants us to go to heaven. How much? John 3.16, that's how much. He opened up the way. Through that book we're holding this morning, he tells us about the way. But more than that, he urges us to go that way. And along the way, he helps us get there. Listen, Scripture makes it clear that it is possible that I can make the choice in my life to turn my back on Jesus and harden my heart and walk away. And if I do, when the trumpet sounds, I will be lost. But if I am, it will be over his broken heart. He loves us. He desperately wants us to be in heaven with him. And if we will stick with him, he will stick with us and we'll finish this journey and get to the, get to the goal. Get to heaven. Now someone will say, well, okay, if we can be confident why is it that it seems like so many disciples are not confident? Can I give you a one-word answer to that? Satan. Now, you see it? 
Satan understands, folks. He understands how debilitating doubt is, and he knows those trickle-down implications that all that will have in our life, how it will, how it will uh, affect our, our devotion and our peace. And so what the devil is trying to do is he's trying to plant seeds of doubt about our future with the Lord. So i got about 12, 11 minutes left. Let's see if I can do this. I want to answer a second question, and that is this. What is it that steals our confidence? What is it that keeps us from looking boldly into the future and eagerly anticipating the, the, the return of Christ and, and standing before his throne? There are three things I want to mention to you before we're done this morning. The first is this, willful sin in your life will steal your confidence. Do you see that? The choice to persist in sin will take away your confidence about the future. I think, I think sometimes that we are dreading the Lord's return, not because of uncertainty, because, but because we are certain we know what the law of God is. And we are certain that we're not doing it. And we're certain about the implications of that. You know, sometimes lurking in the dark corners of our life, there are secret sins that we hang on to. And so maybe a man, for example, has a private pornography habit. And with all the helpful technology today, he's successfully hid it even from the people closest to him. But a guy that's spending his day looking at porn knows looking and lusting is sin, Matthew 5, 28. He knows that isn't right. And if the trumpet sounds and the Lord comes, he knows he's in trouble. How do you have peace? See it? Or maybe someone is stepping out the side of their marriage and they're involved in adultery. Or maybe they're living a double life. Maybe they put on a nice pretense with, with, with Sunday church clothes and, and, and questions in Bible class and, and sincere faces in worship. But if you could see them out at the plant when they're with the guys and the words that come out of their mouth and the kind of stuff they talk about and laugh about, they would be embarrassed for us to know the other person they are at work. Listen, when we're living that way, when we're living the double life, when we're keeping, when we're keeping those dirty little secrets in the dark corners of our life, when we're hiding sin, there is no peace. Do you see that? We know the implications. And the fear it produces, it is a lousy way to live life. I want you to go back for a minute to 2 Timothy 4, because I want you to see, brothers and sisters, that as Paul looked confidently to the future, his confidence is inseparably linked to his godly life. Did you see that? This is 2 Timothy 4 again. Look at verse 8. He says, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. There's his confidence. But what did he say just before that? He said, I have fought a good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. He was living a godly life. That's why he could be confident about his future. The two are tied together. And so if you're looking for peace about your future while hanging on to sin and the dark corners of your life, give it up. It doesn't work. 
I want to have peace about my future. And I've got to bring those sins to the Lord, and I've got to ask for his forgiveness, and I have to stop sinning because as long as it's there, it is terrifying to think about the Lord coming. Willful sin is an enemy of our peace. Number two, for some people, the problem is not so much with willful sin, but with concern over their imperfections. Maybe I'm not trying to hang on to some dark sin in my life, but I do keep messing up in my life. Have you been there? Think about the brand new disciple, someone who has just been a Christian a couple of months. I mean, every time he picks up the Bible and he starts reading something, he finds something else. Oh, here's another area of my life where my, my attitude or my, my actions don't measure up with Christ. I mean, he's working on stuff all the time. Or maybe you've been a, a, a Christian a long, long time. And you still battle weakness. Maybe you're temperamental. And you're okay until the temperature gets turned up and you're involved in some hot conversation. All of a sudden, you start doing say things and saying things that don't look anything like Jesus and you just struggle with that. Maybe you struggle with that for a long time. And so it's really hard to be confident when you keep messing up, isn't it? Sometimes I think that that springs from this idea that, that if I'm going to go to heaven, then I've just got to live this Christian life perfectly. You know, Peter would tell you you're not going to do that. Aren't y'all glad Peter's in the Bible? I mean, some of these guys look larger than life, but I will tell you, Peter doesn't. I relate to him because like Peter, I mess up all the time, Right? I mean, he has these really great moments, and then he fumbles, and he messes up, and every disciple is just that way. Even if you've been a Christian for many, many, many years, and, and, and yet, yet you keep studying, and you keep finding stuff, doesn't it? New ways that you need to raise your level of service to God. Folks, if being confident requires that I reach the point that I'm executing the Christian life perfectly, no one's ever going to be confident, because nobody does it. I think the real issue here is not with whether or not we're going to fail, but what do we do when we fail, right? If I see the areas of my life as I study the Bible, I see the areas where I am not measuring up to the standard that God has set for me. When I see that, and yet I choose to keep falling short, when I, I, I choose to grow and mature, refuse rather to grow and mature, well, now I've got another problem. Now that's become willful sin, right? There is an alternative. In 1 John 1 and verse 9, John said, if we confess, oh, there it is, if we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, what will he do? Do you see it in your Bible? He is what? Faithful and righteous to do what? Forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I will tell you, folks, as I see my failure, and I repent and bring that to God and ask for his forgiveness, when I'm doing those things, I can be confident that he has and that he is pleased with my efforts to serve him. You don't have to let your imperfections rob you of your confidence about the futures. God's provided for that. 
A third enemy, though. For some, the struggle is not with addressing the sins they know about. Their fear is with the sin they don't know about. So a third enemy is the fear of the unknown sin. Sometimes people wonder, what if I'm missing something here? What if there's some instruction in the Bible and I've just not seen it yet? Or what if there's some principle that God intends for me to make application and I've just not, I've just not seen that yet or appreciated that yet? Some people are afraid that they're going to get to judgment day and God's going to be like a lawyer looking at a contract and he's going to find something way down on page 392. Little bitty print at the bottom paragraph says, ah, you didn't do this, buddy. You are out of here. You are not going to go to heaven. I'm going to miss it because of some, some unknown sin that I didn't see. Ever think about that? You know, folks, I'm going to say something. I want you to hear me on this because I think it's really important. We need to understand that nobody has perfect knowledge of the Bible. Are we together on that? Nobody has perfect knowledge of the Bible. And by that I mean nobody understands perfectly all the laws of God for us, every principle found in the text, and every potential application of that principle to every facet in life. What I'm saying to you is you and I never get to the point where we have studied the Bible enough, we know everything that it says, and we can put it on a shelf and say, I'm done, I don't need to read it anymore, I've got it all, right? In fact, you've heard us make this point before. That's one of the amazing things about the Bible. I don't care how long that you've been, Max, how long you've been studying the Bible? 51 years, you still find the new stuff? After 51 years of daily study, still seeing new things, appreciating new things, seeing more ways to grow and to be like Jesus. You've heard us say this before too. The life of a disciple is a never-ending process of learning and growing. We never get to the point where we know it all, right? And so that's what I mean when I say nobody knows the Bible perfectly. And so since that's true, there must be some way to continue to be confident even without having perfect knowledge. And I think that involves at least two things. Let me mention to them and then we'll be done. Number one, I think it involves ongoing growth. I think that's part of our responsibility as a disciple. I need to keep studying the Bible. And as I study the Bible, I need to do a second thing. I need to be doing careful self-examination, right? So as I look with the text, look at the text, it's not just so I can argue with my friends about baptism at work, right? I mean, that may be something that we do. We, we study to help teach other people. But first and foremost, I study for me so that I can learn who Jesus was and try to be more like him. And I can learn God's expectation and reach higher to meet those expectations, to be the man that he wants me to be. I work on that all the time. And so there's this process of studying and self-examination and, and change. And even when you are as old as Max, you keep studying and you keep changing. It never ends. To choose to be ignorant, well, that's a willful sin, and we're back to number one. See the problem? So first of all, we continue to grow. Secondly, we talk to God about those things we don't see. Have you thought about that? We need to talk to God 
about the things we don't see. Go back for a moment to the Old Testament. There's this interesting thing in Psalm 19 that I think bears directly on this problem of the unknown sin. This is Psalm 19. Right at the end, in verse number 12, he asks a question. This is Psalm 19, verse 12. Who can discern his errors, the psalmist asks. Do you see that? And then he continues speaking to the Lord. Acquit me of hidden faults. Also, keep back your servant from presumptuous sin. Let them not rule over me. I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. You see what he does there in verse 12? He talks to God about hidden faults. The ways that we're failing and that, that we do not see. I think we do two things when we bring them to God. Number one, we ask God to help us see our hidden faults. And when he exposes them, go back to the learning, growing, changing process, right? That's what's supposed to happen. But he also asks God to forgive him of the things that he does not see. And I'll just be playing with you, brothers and sisters, when we're doing that. When we're working the things that we know, trying to mold ourselves in the image of his son, and asking God to show us more and forgive us of those ways where we're failing and that we don't see, when we're doing that kind of stuff, listen, we can be confident. That is exactly what God wants us to do. We can be confident about our future with him in heaven. Don't forget, brothers and sisters, God is for us in this. He wants us to go to heaven. He wants to help us get there. The issue is not, will God stick with me all the way to the end? He will. The issue is, will I stick with him all the way to the end? And if I will, I will certainly go to heaven. So, maybe there's somebody sitting in the crowd today who when I began all of this with a question, if Jesus came today, would you go to heaven? Maybe there's someone sitting here today that in your heart you said no. And maybe it's because you know. It isn't about things you're not certain about. It's because you know what's in your life. And you know what the Lord requires. And that's not who you are. And that's not where you are. The good news is, that's not where he wants you to be. He'll do something about that today. If you let him through the blood of his son, God will wash you clean. And make you his child. And help you on your way to heaven. And you can leave this place without a doubt on your heart, with no more uncertainty, with a peace that passes all understanding. God will do that for you right now, today, if you will make the choice to be with him and abide in him. So, are you a disciple who needs to come back home? Are you not a disciple and you need to become one by putting on Christ in baptism? Whatever your need is, this church family wants to help you today. All you need to do as we sing this song is make your way down to the front. While we stand, while we sing.